for today's session, we have uh, with us uh, Ellen Pofeld, a journalist, content strategist, blogger, ghostwriter, but especially the author of a book which I loved, which is called The Million Dollar One Person Business. Thank you, Ellen, for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Gennaro. It's great to be here. It's uh, really a great pleasure because, uh, you know, I uh, got a lot of inspiration from, uh, from your book. And so, really, I would love to start uh, from, uh, from your journey. So, how did you get into this research? What, what drove you there? And also, you know, uh, uh, what, uh, uh, you know, motivated you to actually uh, look into uh, the, 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 the million-dollar one-person business? It's, it's funny, Gennaro. I, I've been a journalist for a long time writing about entrepreneurship. And one thing I noticed was that almost all the coverage is about scalable startups, but the vast majority of small businesses are one-person businesses. In the U.S., for instance, there are 28 million small businesses. 81% are called non-employer businesses, meaning they don't have payroll. So it could be most of them are solos, but sometimes it's partners like a husband and wife team or two friends or a family business. But um, that's the vast majority. And they were getting no coverage at all, even though they were quite significant. Then. Um, just through um, coincidence, I read a blog for Forbes, and like a lot of writers, I sometimes fall behind, and it was getting to the end of the month, and I was looking for inspiration on something to write about. So I came across these um, census statistics on the non-employer business and how much revenue they were bringing in, and I noticed that there was a pocket of solo entrepreneurs that were bringing in between $1 million and $2.49 million U.S. dollars in revenue per year. And I was really curious about what they were doing because you know, a lot of us know people that are graphic designers or writers or other types of one-person businesses. They're not making a million dollars a year. And I looked through the data and I found it was really interesting. It was across many different industries, manufacturing, um, professional services, personal services like um, nutritionists and fitness trainers. It was in real estate, um, informational marketing, people who do things like you know webinars and self-publishing um, courses, that sort of thing. I wrote a post about it, and I didn't know who the entrepreneurs were because it, the U.S. Census isn't going to tell you. It's a confidential survey, and it went viral. It had something like 240,000 page views, and people were writing to me saying, you know, we, we need to know more. We're really interested in this trend, um, but you didn't tell us who the entrepreneurs are. And I said, well, I don't know. Um, so I'll write to the readers of Forbes and say, if you're one of these businesses, please write to me. So I, I, I wrote a few more posts about different niches, like consultancies that bring in one million. And in those posts, I, I requested that people write. So about a year later, I have five of them. Um, and I wrote this other post about them. One was Alan Walton, the founder of Spy Guy. It's a, um, a, a store that sells cameras. Like if people are concerned about uh, keeping an eye on their babysitter who's watching their children, that sort of thing, or preventing elder abuse, they, those are the cameras that he sells. There was Dan Mezaritsky, who is a fitness trainer who licensed the right to use his brand to a whole bunch of other fitness trainers. Um, Rachel Charlupsky, who was, she started her business as a college student. It's a babysitting service that provides babysitting um, to enterprises or people on vacation at hotels. Um, 
And she had something like 2,500 babysitters. And I just spoke with her. She's still in business and still a one-person business and doing really well, actually. She's in New York City. Um, and then um, there was a, a wealth manager who had a, a newsletter um, that um, people valued greatly and paid him a lot of money for, um, and so on. And this post had something like 350,000 pages. So I realized people were very interested in the topic. And I started every time I found one of these businesses, I would write about them. And then eventually an agent contacted me and said, this would make a great book. And I, by that point, I kind of was writing the book in my head anyway. So that, that was how it came about. And since then, I, I, I think I've interviewed about 60. And just to give you an idea, there are about 37,000 of these businesses out of 28 million small businesses in the United States. So there, it's not that many. But the way I look at it is it's kind of like running the four-minute mile. There was a point that people did not think it was possible. And then Roger Bannister did it. And then other people realized, yes, you could run a four-minute mile. Now a number of people have run a four-minute mile. I think when people realize it's possible, it expands their capacity for what they can achieve. So I feel like anybody in any size business can take away things from the stories of these businesses that they can apply and that will help them to build their revenue. Um, and I, I, I do want to add something. I don't feel like businesses that don't get to 1 million have no value or should feel bad that they're not at 1 million. But the reality is it is, it is very hard to run a one person business because there's no safety net. For people in businesses, so things it depends on the country, but like in the U.S., you don't have health care through the government, so people have to buy it, and it's very expensive. I mean, there's just a lot of things that can happen in a business. You have unsteady income, so you really need more cash reserves than people think. Yep. So, if people build their revenue and profits, it gives them the security that you might get through other means if you went the more traditional route with your career. And I find that. A lot of business owners are motivated by passion for the business, but they to be sustainable, they need to kind of uh, become more businessy about how they run their business. Right. This book is, you know, it tells you how real people are doing that and, and achieving really great results. Yeah, very very interesting story, and of course, uh, I, I think uh, your your book right now is uh, even uh, 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 greater value because. As, he, as we move forward and uh, also in other countries, um, you know, it becomes possible to automate part of the, the, the processes that we run with, with our businesses. And today we have many uh, software that can help with us uh, with, with, with this kind of, uh, uh, of uh, processes. Actually, probably it becomes uh, possible to build uh, more and more those sorts of, um, of, uh, of businesses. And as you said, it's very important for a one-person uh, business to actually push towards the goal of, uh, of uh, getting uh, like 1 million in revenue because then, of course, it's a completely different setup compared uh, uh, if you were just an employee where the, the money is getting, uh, you know, uh, paid uh, by the company for you in terms of uh, insurance, health, uh, and, you know, also pension funds and those kind of things. Instead, if you're working as an entrepreneur, I mean, that's uh, even if you're running a solo business, you still are. Uh, 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 an entrepreneur, so you have to think like that, and so you need you need to have a lot of uh, cash uh, reserves. So it, it makes a lot of sense. But in uh, in your experience, like uh, what are uh, some of the factors that uh, uh, really push uh, people to start their own uh, 
solo uh, business um, in the, in the first place. Well, that's that's a, a great question, Janera. And I, I just to backtrack for one moment, I think you made an excellent point that this is about thinking like an entrepreneur. And uh, you know, a lot of people will go into a business and think, oh, you know, I'm an attorney or I am a manufacturer, but you're also an entrepreneur. And and the more you think like that you know, an opportunity spotter, someone who creates opportunities, someone, you know, who, who is maybe making things up as you go along because there isn't a rule book for what you're doing, that the, the more your business will thrive. It's, it's really a mindset. And, it, you know, in terms of what drives people, it does come out of mindset too. I think there are different groups of people that I've found. Like when I've done events around the U.S. Um, where I've done panels of the entrepreneurs from the book, the audience will consist of different groups. One, I think, is young people that want to do startups, not necessarily all young people, but people who want to do startups. Um, and so this is like a way station on the way to a startup where eventually they plan to scale, but for right now, they just like to get to a million. So there's that group. Um, I, I see parents, like mompreneurs, but sometimes dads too, who want more flexibility to spend time with their children, and they can't get that in corporate life. Um, you'll see older people. I, I don't know what the situation is like in Italy, but in the U.S., we have a lot of age discrimination in certain fields, particularly like tech. It's very hard for somebody to keep moving ahead with their career after about age 45 in technology. Um, and so people get pushed out. People have had very good jobs and have a lot of capability, and they're really not old. They have a lot of vitality, and, and yet the job market doesn't want them anymore. It doesn't want to pay them what they're worth, so they go out on their own. And then I see people that are um, retirees or like pre-retirees who would like to combine some work with travel and other things. And there's actually another group that's of all ages, I think, digital nomads people that just want to experience the world and travel and have a business that's mobile. So it's, it's a lot of different people. And that I, it's kind of an exciting trend because it really does bring together a lot of, a lot of people at different stages of life all, all over the world. Yep. Interesting. And, uh, you know, just to give uh, also my perspective as uh, I'm running the, the four week MBA mostly as a, as a solo business. I mean, the, one of the things that also uh, motivated me to, to start this project was a uh, passion for uh, the, the, the topic. So I was really, uh, as, as I went back um, to, to business school in 2011, I uh, thought, um, you know, once I was out from the business school, that it would be very nice to have a, a sort of a digital uh, platform where you could find all the resources that you could find at, at business school. But you know, in really all digital format and really uh, primarily focused on uh, on uh, on the new digital channels and new digital businesses that are really becoming the norm, uh, the the, the uh, you know the, the normal journey right now. And so I started really as a, as a as a passion, and then uh, of course as I, I as, as I grew it, I tried to look at where opportunities were. So I also looked at the uh, the how the market was looking at certain topics because, for instance, when I Started the four week MBA. I was primarily talking about financial topics, and then I moved it more on the business side. And when I did this kind of change, 
actually I experienced a, a, a big, a, like tremendous growth in terms of, uh, of uh, visibility of, uh, of the, the blog. So it's very important on my side, at least for my experience, to look at your passion, but then understand also uh, what the market is looking for. And uh, combining the two can be a very powerful formula to build a business that uh, you're going to enjoy for, for many, many years. So, um, and uh, on, on your side, how, um, in the book you actually uncovered uh, what are the primary business models that uh, um, the, the million dollar one person businesses are using. Uh, what are some of those? And, um, you know, um, just for our audience to understand what are the options that exist uh, out there. Oh, there, there are so many that I, I kind of grouped it into um, some main rubrics just to give people a place to start. Um, one of them is professional services. Now, I, I have to say something. Service businesses are hard to get to one million, so you have to be very creative. But for professional services, like you know, an attorney, accountant, somebody like that who's been on payroll somewhere and then they go out and put out a shingle, sometimes they're very highly compensated and good at what they do. So they can quickly get to $1 million just by pricing their services according to what the market will bear. Um, some of them are doing things like consulting. I, I wrote about one entrepreneur who, he, he's a um, consultant in the oil and gas industry. His name is Chad Patchkey. He's not in, in the book, but I, I met him after I wrote it. And what he did, um, he, his services go for about $300 an hour U.S. dollars. He hired a bunch of colleagues who were kind of scaling down in their career. He's in his early 50s, but he had some, some colleagues who were getting into that pre-retirement stage, wanted, didn't want the corporate stress anymore, and brought them on as consultants to work in his business. And he's able to bill them out. So he got to 1 million in about a year because he's got a whole bunch of highly compensated people that are working with him in that capacity. Um, done quite well. He's in the Austin, Texas area. So you can, you can do it that way by teaming up with other consultants. Um, sometimes they do informational marketing where um, they might have a course or do a webinar. I remember attending a webinar for an article I was writing um, that had to do with a change in credit card law. And these two attorneys were experts in this niche area. And they charged, it was between two and $300 a person. Well, there were 600 other people in the room with me who paid the two or $300 for this one hour. And then they aired it a few more times and charged the same amount to watch the um, non-live version of it. Right? So think about that, how much revenue wow. a professional with expertise can bring in. And I'm sure they paid somebody to manage the webinar, but how much could that possibly cost compared to what they were charging? And think about how that compares to if they use that one hour to sit down with one client. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's kind of an exponential thinking that we see. I mean, sometimes they'll create a product that, that goes along with – the business. So it could be a course or something like that. Um, it could be a mastermind, something that has recurring revenue. And um, I think they have masterminds all around the world. That's like a group of people led by a coach who will help them to scale their business in some way. Um, and that applies to 
personal services too, the, the same service business approaches. So you could be a nutritionist, a fitness trainer. Um, th there's a lot of services that people do that, that could be treated in that way. They're like yoga teachers who are Instagram influencers, um, a lot of people like that. Um, then another area is manufacturing. So manufacturing used to be something where you had to be a big company. Now you can use a co-packer. And one example from the book was a couple, um, Luis Zavalas and Rebecca Cronace. They're a married couple, and her father is a beekeeper, and he sells the bees to farms, commercial farms, and he wasn't doing anything with the honey. So they realized they could bottle up the honey and sell it, and it, they knew um, it was unadulterated honey. They knew he took very good care to keep it pure and that sort of thing, and there's a lot of adulterated honey being circulated out in the world, so it was a good selling point, and they, that was how they built their business, using a co-packer. They didn't do, you can't bottle it up in your house, but you pay a co-packer a certain amount, and they handle all the commercial processing, so you know it meets food safety requirements, it can be put on the shelves of stores, and that sort of thing. Um, that's an option. Um, there is also um, real estate is another area that almost anybody can do if they save up some money and have good credit. One, one example from the book is Corey Binsfield, who he was a financial planner and he bought a duplex in Duluth, Minnesota, where he's from. And he used the money from that to keep on buying more property. So anyway, he got to over 100 properties over a 20-year period. And that became bigger than his financial planning business. And so he's, that's his million-dollar one-person business. These things are not always overnight success stories for people you know, who have no patience. You, you do have to put in the time with some of these. But now it brings in quite a bit of revenue for him. So those, those are a few. I mean, there's, there's many, many types of businesses that people do. E-commerce is another really big one. You're talking about digital businesses. That's huge. It used to be a little easier to do it on Amazon. Now I think the competition, just from what I hear from the people in the book, has gotten more intense. So you have some people going onto other platforms in some cases, or they're building up their own platform more, or they are using Instagram to market yeah. in conjunction with a Shopify store. Um, they, there's so many different ways to do it, but the idea is you, you can scale pretty quickly if you, if you know what you're doing and you use Facebook ads and things like that to really build a following around the brand. So this uh, infinite, infinite possibilities. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. And I think there are uh, two key points for me to highlight as I uh, try also my side to, uh, to help people to grow their, their uh, digital businesses. Um, the, the first is, of course, uh, is that uh, you need to just change uh, the way you think uh, um, about what you're doing because it's not, uh, it's not like you're building a passive income uh, it's uh, the way I see it. It's more like a non-linear process where you put the work today, and uh, the work that you're putting today probably you're gonna earn it in a year's time or two years' time. So when you start really making money, in reality, the money that you're making is for the work, the, all the work that you've done in the in the in the past months or the past years. And uh, really, the way you, um, you you approach the work is different because it's, uh, it's scalable. So you try to look at creative ways to actually make your business scale as quickly as possible because otherwise. As a, as a solo business with limited resources, resources it's very hard to 
to grow it. And I, I think a second point, which for me is very important, which I, w- I want to highlight is, uh, as you said before, I think it was uh, way easier to actually grow a business on top of a, an existing digital platform like Amazon, uh, for instance. Uh, today, I think it's very important that you start to look at the building up your own uh, distribution, uh, meaning that you need to build your own audience uh, uh, when you start a, a digital business, even though it's a bit more expensive uh, in terms of uh, time and resources. Uh, but for instance, when you do have uh, your own platform, like your own blog, uh, you, you grow on your own newsletter, I think it's way more, uh, you know, uh, probably reliable as, as, a, as, a, as a business. Uh, but tell me your experience as well. I mean, I'm, I'm curious to hear also on, on your side. What, what do you think? I, I agree with you, Gennaro, because there's a certain amount of risk to depending too much on one platform. They can change the algorithm and then totally upend your business. Um, it, it, you know, there, it, there's pros and cons, right? I, I think you need a balance where sometimes you do have the scale of an Amazon or Instagram or Facebook that you need to get the product or service out there to the world. But I think you do need to diversify in terms of having your own list, having some way to keep in touch directly with your customers. You don't want to really hand that over to a platform. I mean, the, the other thing is like, what if the platform just closed? I doubt Amazon is going to close anytime soon or Instagram, but the world is moving very fast, you know, and things go, I, I remember there was a, on um, the social media site called MySpace, right? Nobody, I don't think anyone really uses that anymore. Maybe they do. Yeah. I never hear anything about it. Right. So things can change very right. quickly. And so if you're too dependent on any one external source of, of customer flow, you could be in trouble. So you really mm-hmm. you need to own your contact with the customers. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree with that as well. And I think there is also another shift right now, which is happening on the on the large platforms uh, side. I mean, if we look at uh, companies like Amazon, but also Google, and uh, I don't know, like any other, like Netflix, any other digital platforms that really uh, became a tech giant. In the past, they were primarily uh, aggregators, so they were primarily taking content or taking like products from the web and reselling on on their own platforms. But right now, uh, those are becoming, uh, they're, they're producing their own uh, products as well. So as uh, you know, uh, if you're using those platforms as primary platforms without building your own uh, distribution, actually the risk is that you might lose that uh, anytime soon because they uh, might be entering your space. Um, and as we said, I think branding is very important. You also highlight that in, uh, in the book. But how do you build a branding for a solo business if you don't have the money to do that? I mean, if you have very uh, few uh, financial resources. Well, Chinara, one of the best things about being a solo business is you're really the main point of contact with the customer. So your brand can be an extension of your personality. We see that a lot with the Instagram influencers, right? You can show your lifestyle in images if if what you're marketing is lifestyle and really connect with people it could just be through very caring customer service i found with a lot of these businesses they get very close to their customers and if somebody has a complaint they get on the phone with them take feedback use that to modify the product and i think that builds very passionate supporters so i think you, you um, being very creative 
can can truly help um, to brand and, and really not trying to be a big company or create the image of a big company, creating the image of a small company with a real person behind it is very, very powerful. I, I, I agree uh, as well on, on the kind of communication that, uh, um, that you need to do, you need to differentiate your, your communication. That's also, I think, uh, why it's very important to own your your uh, your communication, your distribution, because in this way you can really communicate in which way you are different from from the large uh, tech platform, and which way you really are uh, you are more authentic. And I think it's uh, it's uh, like one of the most important points when building up a, a, a solo business or a small business or you know a one person business. Um, and uh, just uh, you know, curious to uh, hear from you uh, based on your experience. Like, um, uh, do you think, uh, in terms of uh, building up your solo business, uh, this starting it as a side hustle is is something that makes sense, or like you you might want to go, um, uh, you know, right away uh, all in with with the, with the project that you're building. I mean, what, what do you think is uh, the um, the probably the, the less risky way but also the the more the, the most effective in in a way to, to build a solo business are you saying go all in and just do it 100 percent of the time versus yeah. do it as a side business well yeah. I, what i found is most of these people the, the reality is and I, this might be different in other parts of the world in the u.s a very large portion of the population is not able to save four hundred dollars according to a survey by the Fed, um, people don't make that much in jobs. And so I think it's more practical to try to start a business on the side if you don't have a lot of saving. There are some people that do have a lot of savings. You know, maybe they, they could cover their living expenses for six months and the expenses of the business and could just dive in. But you really have to be realistic about what your personal responsibilities are. I know that's not the mindset of Silicon Valley where it's just like all in, roll up your sleeves 24-7. There's very few people at that stage of life where they can just drop everything and have no responsibilities to other people where they can operate that way. So I think for the vast majority, it's better to do it on the side. But then, you know, don't do it on the side forever. Use that time that you're doing it on the side to really gather information about what's working. If you introduce some products that are duds and some are successful, you know, drop the duds and lean into the ones that are successful and really try to amp up some momentum so that you can leave your job. And then there is a point where you just have to take the leap. I know um, one of the entrepreneurs in the book, Laszlo Nadler, he had a job at Bank of America as a project manager and he, he ran his business on the side for a couple of years. He had a wife, um, who was an at-home mother at the time, and they have um, two children. So he had to bring in an income. But then he got to six-figure revenue in the business, and he felt comfortable that he could afford to keep a roof over their head and not create family stress. And then he went full-time with the business. Now he's at $2 million in revenue, and he um, recently hired his first employee. Um, and he, he sort of knew when he had to take the leap and go all in, but it isn't necessarily right out of the starting gate. Yep, interesting, Ellen. Th thanks a lot for clarifying that. I think it's a it's a very very important point, um, which you know, and just um, I, I think it, you you might be compelled to actually do it uh, 
uh, goal in as, as, uh, as uh, you are excited about the business. But as we said, you need to be practical. And initially, you might need uh, really cash. So uh, even starting probably a business that, um, you know, is not your first passion or is not like uh, something that uh, you necessarily want to do for the whole life, but then it's something that, you know, is going to uh, is going to bring you cash and then you can use also to uh, reinvest in uh, in uh, uh, in other uh, solo businesses in the future i mean uh, it uh, it makes sense uh, but in in, um, in in your experience like uh, how do you feel that um, at least for for the, the 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 case studies that you've seen um, how do you know when uh, is the right moment to actually um, jump on on the on the business i mean uh, do you look at profitability um, do you look more at uh, uh, the the um, you know the the perspective on the business how can you actually uh, make sure not to uh, skew that up uh, in that moment you're saying the moment to actually start the business yeah no I, i'm saying like when you started already the the business and the business is actually uh, already growing it has already uh, you know producing let's say it goes to 100 200 or like 300,000 in revenues and you feel like okay now the business is uh, is uh, is going uh, good enough how do you know whether it makes sense to actually uh, jump on the um, on the on the business at full time i think the business will start to tell you what you need to know mm-hmm. it's just demand will keep increasing right if you you're, you're marketing and you're getting smarter about how you market you're increasing your capacity financially like if you do a product related business you you need to have credit you you know there's certain things you need to have in place so that you can grow and those things will start happening organically i think it will just become inevitable at a certain point that you know customers keep coming what you're doing is working it's not slowing down there's a consistency from month to month in revenue the consistency is important because your bills are due usually on a 30 day cycle or you know weekly cycle depending on what it is so you need some sort of consistent revenue coming in or you need if you, if say you're a product related business and most of your sales are right before the holidays in the fall you need to know that like consistently maybe for a year or two you've been making a certain amount that you can stretch throughout the year it's different for each business but it's i i think for most of these folks and, and most entrepreneurs in general, there's a point where it just becomes inevitable. It's just taking a lot of time. Opportunity keeps increasing. Now, if you're doing it and it's really not taking off, that's something to also think about because you can become so passionate and determined to succeed that maybe you're not hearing something from the market. Like people don't want this product or there's too much competition in this niche. And it's very hard to separate your emotions when you've been so passionate about it. But what I found is the entrepreneurs that are successful find some way to do it. Maybe it's through a mindfulness practice like yoga or meditation. They do something where they learn how to separate themselves from the emotions that might hold you back from, from really hearing what the world is telling you about this business and if you can really listen with an open heart and view it as something educational, it's tremendously powerful. Um, one couple, Ben and Camille Arneberg, a married couple who have built $3 million um, ultra lean businesses like this, 
told me when they started the first one, it was called Willow and Everett. And it was an Amazon store that sold decorative housewares for parties, things like, you know, wine decanters and coffee mugs and that sort of thing. They spent $5,000 on inventory and they said that was money that they could afford to lose. They had saved it up. And they said, even if we fail with these products, it will be the equivalent of a college course, what we learn from this. So it will not have been money wasted. If you can sort of take that attitude, um, you know, that you're going to gain valuable information regardless. Maybe it's that you have to pivot if you've done it for a year or two and it's just not taking off despite everything you're doing, you'll, you'll really be a better entrepreneur for it. And eventually you'll come across the idea that does work for you. Yeah. Interesting. And, uh, uh, you, you touched all, all great points and, uh, um, consistency. I think it's extremely important because as you said, if you don't have a consistent business and it really depends by the kind of business. So as you said, if you, if you have a seasonal business, you need to make sure at least to go probably a couple, two or three years into the business and know that at least, at least uh, uh, at each season, you're going to get the same stream of revenue. So otherwise, really, you're, you're jumping into something which is not uh, that stable. And of course, if you have a family and you need cash, uh, it's not the best way to do so. Absolutely. Uh, it, uh, it also, uh, it all makes sense for me. And uh, if you were to, uh, what would you suggest to someone who actually uh, trying to start a, a, a solo business today? I mean, what are the key things that uh, this person should be looking at? Well, you, you, you want to look at what you can bring to the market that no one else can, because every person in the world is unique. And I find that the business owners who tap into that uniqueness of thinking or abilities or talents really can, can do well because people like that. They love to connect with someone and you know, something that's real. And, and I think really thinking hard about what, what's different about you will, will help a lot. Every industry has a conversation in it. And I, I, I disagree with a point of view that I see a lot, which is that corporate people cannot be good entrepreneurs. I always hear that from, from folks you know, in the Silicon Valley scene, like you're either an entrepreneur or you're a corporate, you can't do both. But what I actually find is people who've worked in corporate for a while, whether it's for five years or 20 years or 30 years, they're very familiar with what's going on in their industry. And often they disagree with how things are being done. Like they've worked in a big company and they have an idea, but they can't get it up the flagpole because of the politics or whatever. They have very good ideas. Um, And if they can build up the risk tolerance to actually act on their own idea, they can do really well. That's the other part of it is there is a certain amount of risk to running a business. Now I'm talking about million dollar one person businesses. This isn't like the Silicon Valley startup that raises $40 million. That's like a whole other level of risk. And I really applaud the people that build those businesses Um, This is like a lighter version of risk, but it still is giving up a certain amount of security. When you reach that point that you talked about, Gennaro, where you're, you you know, maybe you got to six figures and now you take the leap. Um, And, and I, what I recommend for people to do, because we're, we're taught our whole lives not to take risks, right? School tells us not to take risks, study hard and go into this career and you'll be all set. The whole idea of being set, you know, is indoctrinated into us. Um, you've got to build up your ability to take risks. So it might be, 
in your old company, the company made all the investments in things like your professional education or innovation. Well, in your own business, maybe you invest in creating a prototype. And a lot of people feel hesitant to even spend the money on themselves because they don't know if it's going to pay off. But you got to start small in those cases if you're resisting it and start making the investments, put up a website, do these things. I'm not saying to waste money, but you do have to sort of get used to the idea of making investments that might not pay off. Yep. So that you can build your tolerance for, for running a business because that's the scariest part. People don't really talk about what that's like, but when you hit a point in your business where something goes wrong, maybe it's in the economy and people aren't paying you. It's like a white knuckle situation that many people have not experienced before. And it can create a lot of feelings of shame, I think, in people when it might not be their fault. They're working around the clock. They're working hard. They're delivering their product. But then the Great Recession hits, right? Yeah. That wasn't anybody's fault, you know, who's a business owner. So you have to be mentally prepared for that or it's going to knock you out. And it, it's it's kind of building your mental and emotional capacity. I, I find, like I've run a business since 2007. I know people always think this is funny when I tell them because I'm a mother with four children, but I take Taekwondo with my daughters. and We're, we're second degree black belts now. Wow. And I've been doing it for years. And that's been, I would say, the number one thing that helped me running a business, building right. the mental discipline to keep showing up to the class three times a week, most weeks, and sometimes really struggling with certain aspects of it. I mean, I'm not really a street fighter. It's a street fighting discipline. <laughs> so I, I have had to um, get into it, but it, but it, but it, it forces you to grow. Absolutely. And it also shows you that if you keep showing up, there's a growth, that just comes in understanding inexplicably. You don't know what day it's going to arrive, but suddenly one day you get there and you can do the moves. It doesn't have to be martial arts, by the way. I do yoga too. And the same thing happens in yoga, which is very gentle. Um, it, it could be just meditation. It could be anything, but you do really, really need to build your mental strength in order to do this thing, because there isn't a lot of social support. A lot of people get resistance from their families and the people around them who are worried that they're taking too much risk or they won't have a secure future and maybe rightfully so in some ways, but it's like, you, you want to do this thing, th yeah. then you've got to be committed to it. And I think the more committed you are, the more likely you are to succeed, but it, it, it is not easy. And I think that's why, it, you know, it comes back to sharing the case studies and stories. I think there's a strength in community. There are a lot of people around the world who are, are running one person businesses of all sizes and they're at all different stages of doing it. These people that I write about are really the Olympic athletes of this. And I, every time I talk to them, I just got off the phone with a couple that is in Bali, they're digital nomads, they're selling travel bags. And I get so inspired from hearing their stories because it takes so much courage to do what they're doing. But when it starts really working, it's tremendously exciting, you know, and right. here they are, the New Yorkers living in Bali now, right? That's pretty nice. Yeah, it's cold here and they're in the warmth at the beach. So it, it opens tremendous doors. Yeah, and as you said, I mean, it, it, takes, uh, it takes a lot of uh, faith because uh, initially at the beginning, it's very hard also to convince your own friends and family that 
what you're doing, it's, it actually makes sense. And, you know, especially if you're in a corporate job and you have the safety of the, the corporate job, uh, it's, um, it's, it's very hard to, to, to prove that what, you're, uh, what you want to achieve as an entrepreneur makes, uh, makes sense. But I, I think uh, probably this is a, as, as a last point, which I think is very important to emphasize. Um, people that work uh, corporate jobs, I think uh, they, they can be uh, entrepreneurs. And actually, probably the fact that they've been working in uh, corporate environments for uh, so long actually can push them as a motivation because you can show and you can prove with your business that um, you can do things in a different way so that you can do things on your own terms. So I think it's a very, uh, even if it is a negative motivation because from the frustration that you feel probably as, as a corporate uh, animal, actually you get the, the motivation to start your uh, solo business. So it's not just a matter, I think, of uh, taking risk. It's also a matter of avoiding frustration. So you get to a certain yes. <laughs> <laughs> You're right. It is. Well, I, I mean, I get so many letters from people that I just got one the other day from someone, you know, experiencing corporate bullying. I mean, it's rough. It's yeah, it's rough. Business. So at a certain stage, it becomes like uh, the, the natural choice. It's like, uh, you know, I, I, I've taken enough. Uh, this is uh, probably the, the emotions I'm feeling right now are negative emotions, but those are pushing me toward a positive goal, which is building my, my own business and doing it in my own terms so that I can show that there is a different way to do it. And I think, you know, this is probably the, the way I, I love to end the, the show. So thank you, Ellen, for, for being with us today. It was a pleasure. Um, and uh, of course, for anyone listening, uh, you need to read the $1 million one-person business because uh, this is an incredible read. It's very inspirational. It's very practical and really uh, gets you started in this, this journey if you're, if you're thinking uh, to, to actually start your own business, but also if you're in the process of doing it and understanding when is the best way uh, to, to transition to your, your business. So thanks, thanks again, Ellen, for, for being with us. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much, Genera. And I, I would just like to invite people I, I get a lot of letters from all over the world and I do answer them on, on LinkedIn or Twitter under my first and last names, which I'm sure are in the show notes, but feel free to write to me if you have a question about something in a book. Cause when you're writing about 32 different types of businesses, I can't cover every single aspect of every business or it would be a thousand page book. <laughs> so, right. um, so feel free to write to me. I really do enjoy hearing from, from fellow entrepreneurs all over the world. Um, and thank you so much, Janara, for doing what you do at the four week MBA. What, what a great offering for people. Um, you're just bridging the knowledge gap and building community. It's really wonderful what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you, Ellen, again. Thank you for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye.